Greetings one and all, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. Each week we read through sermons by C.H. Spurgeon, this week 318 to 324, and that's carried us into the new Park Street Pulpit, Volume 6, and there's a featured sermon each week, and this week it's number 320 on contentment from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, where Paul says he has learned in whatever state he is to be content. If you want to follow along, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can go to mediagratii.org slash podcasts, and you can find the Spurgeon page, and you can sign up there to a weekly newsletter where you'll be able to uh, see what sermons we're reading that week, which featured sermon we're focused on, and then uh, you'll be able to get a uh, PDF of that sermon so that you can read along and hopefully then come to this podcast with uh, everything in place to listen and to appreciate it. You don't need to do that, but I hope that it might be a help to you and perhaps a chance to uh, indulge a little more in uh, in this sermon, to enjoy what you're actually reading and to uh, fill in some of the gaps that these brief podcasts necessarily leave in our consideration. There really is no substitute to to hearing the whole sermon. Uh, You wouldn't necessarily uh, jump in and listen to a a few sentences from your own pastor. Uh, You'd want to listen to the whole thing and get everything in context. Uh, But you might hear someone say, oh, he said this or he said that. And hopefully you'd be encouraged to go and listen to uh, to what he has to say next time. Uh, and that's the aim here, that as you listen to what we do, you will be moved to study more of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and to see him through the lens of uh, Spurgeon's ministry, a man preeminently gifted to make Christ known in his day and since. And so we come to this week's featured sermon. As I've said, it's on contentment. It's March the 25th, 1860. It's at the New Park Street Chapel in Southwark. The text, Philippians 4, verse 11. And Paul's uh, statement there that he has learned to be content in whatever state he is. Now, says Spurgeon, that's wonderful learning. Ill weeds grow apace. In other words... Uh, Weeds grow quickly. Covetousness, discontent and murmuring are as natural to man as thorns to the soil. But here you've got someone who's learned to be content. Even though he's an old grey-headed man on the borders of the grave, a poor prisoner shut up in Nero's dungeon at Rome. Now, Spurgeon's approach in this sermon is quite different from many of the others that he preaches. It's a, a sermon that's different in its structure, different in its balance. What he does is really begin with this sort of rolling exposition of the text. It's uh, not quite word by word, but he zeroes in on these different aspects of his text in order to give us an understanding of what it is that the apostle is saying. And then uh, his three headings are really three applications, a word to the rich a word to the poor, and a word to those who are suffering. So he's going to bring that to bear upon God's people once he's explained what it is that Paul is saying. And so this opening section is is more of a trawl through the text, more of a 
a, a walk through it, if you like, to try and pick up its basic sense. And he says, we might then be willing to endure Paul's infirmities and share his cold dungeon if by doing so we could attain such a degree of contentment. That's the learning process. Don't indulge, says Spurgeon, the silly notion that you can be contented without learning or that you can learn without discipline. In other words, Paul had to go through things by which he learned this spiritual skill of contentment under all circumstances. He gives an immediate commentary on them. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. This then is the school in which Paul learned the lesson of contentment. Spurgeon says he's learned how to be abased. And this then is a wonderful knowledge. It's easy to imagine that we might be content when we're lifted up. But what when we are cast down? Yes, when we're increasing and growing in rank and honour and human esteem, it's an easy work to be contented. But when we have to say with John the Baptist, I must decrease, or when we see some other servant advanced to our place and another man bearing the palm we had longed to hold, it's not easy to sit still and without an envious feeling cry with Moses, would to God that all the Lord's people, all the Lord's servants were prophets. Spurgeon says, imagine that you're a preacher and uh, you see somebody else having opportunities that you might long for. Or somebody else preaches a sermon in your congregation and five people are converted under the ministry of the word who have not, it seems, been touched by your previous efforts. Or somebody perhaps that you, you studied with and they seem to be making progress, climbing the slippery a ladder of ecclesiastical advancement. Ugly notion, but it creeps into our hearts. Can we say, I am delighted that Christ is being preached? Or perhaps we're serving in a church and there are others who, who are appreciated for the work that they do. Uh, one teaches a Sunday school and everybody thinks he's great. Another does the work and no one seems to notice too much. Can the one who is unnoticed, say, what a joy that my brother or sister is gifted for that work of instruction. There must, says Spurgeon, be something noble in the heart of the man who is able to lay all his honours down as willingly as he took them up, when he can as cheerfully submit himself to Christ to humble him as to lift him up and seat him upon a throne. That's a hard thing to learn, but it's something that the Apostle had arrived at and attained to. But he also knew how to abound. And this, says Spurgeon, is perhaps more difficult than otherwise. There are a great many men that know a little how to be abased that do not know at all how to abound. When they're down in the pit with Joseph, they can see the starry promises and hope for an escape. But when they're on top of a pinnacle, their heads grow dizzy and they are ready to fall. The Christian far oftener disgraces his profession in prosperity than when he is being abased. Now, I may have mentioned this before, but there's a, a wonderful book by a, a Puritan author called Jeremiah Burroughs. Burroughs is a wonderful preacher and teacher. If you can read some of his material, do so. The rare jewel of Christian contentment is readily available. 
And what's interesting is that Burroughs first worked that material up into a book out of the experience of being in exile. Later on, he was brought back to his home in England and was exalted to some uh, fairly prominent position as a preacher. And at that point, Burroughs wrote an appendix to his book, which isn't in all the editions, it must be said, having come to the conclusion that it was harder to be content in prosperity and in honour than it was to be content when cast down and in exile. So, you can become worldly, you can become proud, you can... Uh, you can be destroyed by your wealth, says Spurgeon. He goes on. The apostle knew how to experience the two extremes of fullness and hunger. Few of us really know what hunger is today. Now, you may be listening in a place where it's more real and more common. I'm not speaking, of course, of, of genuine deprivation. But most of us, if we complain, oh, I'm hungry, what we mean is, I haven't had a full meal for the last three hours, or I can't find a, a biscuit or a cookie, or uh, there's not a cup of tea or a cup of coffee to hand where I can slake my thirst. I, I don't have uh, water in my bottle. I've got to go all the way to the tap in order to fill it up. Well, Paul knew what it was to be hungry, and perhaps you do too. Have your stomach pinched to day after day be trying to tighten your belt so you can not feel as if your your stomach's growling and you go past the growling stage where there's just a pit of emptiness and even a sharp pain in your gut because you haven't got enough food and the weight starts to drop off. Ah, says Spurgeon, this man knew how to suffer uh, hunger as well as to be stuffed to the gills through the kindness and goodness of God and brothers and sisters. This is a man who's learned to abound and to suffer need. So he's trying to emphasize what Paul has learned, the extremes in which Paul can say, I am content. I am satisfied with my lot. I am satisfied when lifted up. I'm satisfied when I am brought low. Now, how was this, says Spurgeon? How or by what course of study did the apostle acquire this peaceful frame of mind? And he said it is simply by faith in the Son of God. And then he explains how that is the case. First, because the apostle knew he had no right to expect anything better, that everything he received was itself a mercy. He is, he is a sinner. He is against God by nature, and everything that he has received then is a kindness. He said, our conversation or citizenship is in heaven. And he knew then that he was travelling through earth as a pilgrim and a stranger, and so was content to take travellers fare. He knew that his present experience was not necessarily a reflection of his real identity. And so he said, while I'm here, I expect to be assaulted. I expect to be downcast. And so when I am given much, I can be content. And when I have nothing, I can be content. It's what I expect. The other thing is that Paul counted that all the sufferings that fell to him were just incident to the service of his Lord. In other words, this is normal in the service of Jesus Christ. So if there are any particular hardships, it's interesting, isn't it, actually? Uh, let's a little aside here. Uh, having said that 
uh, you need to learn to be content when high as well as low, that Spurgeon assumes that the greatest difficulty with contentment may come in terms of suffering. Uh, I think it's our natural instinct to fall into that uh, pattern of thought. Not entirely wrong, but he, he may have uh, be in danger at this point of losing sight of the fact that he said uh, that the temptations and not just the deprivations, the the offer of things or the presence of things as well as their absence uh, or their removal may be a temptation. But Paul counted that all these things were, were what belongs to the service of God. That's normal. Uh, but what's beautiful, the third uh, aspect of faith here is that Paul is a predestinarian. That is, he's looking ahead and he knows that whatever is happening now, he has blessings to come. And so that really is a large part of the sermon. Now, it may not be the the finest exegesis, may not be the most polished, but Spurgeon is trying now to give you a sense of what this contentment is and how Paul learned it and where it comes from, that it has been a, a course of instruction in which he has been both lifted up and cast down. And he has learned in the highest and in the lowest experience to be satisfied with the dispensation of God toward him. And that satisfaction is rooted in a faith that recognises his present identity and experience, which understands that that experience is in relation to the service of Christ and that looks forward to what lies ahead and understands that what happens now is not the last word. And so three regions of counsel or three lessons to different kinds of people, to the rich, to the poor and to the suffering. What should the rich, the poor and the suffering make of Paul's example of contentment under all circumstances? To the rich, Spurgeon says, be wary, be careful. You may be very discontented, though you are very rich. For however much a man has, his instinct is to desire more. Remember then that a man's contentment is in his mind, not in the extent of his possessions. Most who have much assume that with just a little more they would be satisfied. But it is not so. And so, says Spurgeon, learn to be content with what you have not neglect or disregard opportunities to gain more, but be satisfied with what you have. And if God takes it away, be satisfied with that always. And remember too, that another danger that frequently awaits the rich is that when they think they've got enough wealth and property, they want honour and acclaim. And honour is not something that easily satisfies we want more of it. We want to be lifted up. We love to be applauded. And so Spurgeon warns the rich, be content with what you have. Do not be grasping always for something more or for something else. Learn to thank God for what he has given you without living in a constant state of dissatisfaction. And then at a little more length, he says, I have to counsel the poor. I have learned, says the Apostle, whatever state I am, to be content. Now, says Spurgeon, there are two sorts of poor people in the world. There are the Lord's poor and there are the devil's poor. The devil's poor become poor by their own idleness, their own vice, their own extravagance. And I have nothing to say to them tonight. 
Now, Spurgeon was a man who knew and went among the poor. He understood that condition. And what he's saying is that someone who is poor because they are lazy, because they are wicked or because they are wasteful, he has no comforts for them. And there are many today who fall into the same trap. There is no virtue in poverty in itself. There is no virtue in a poverty that you have brought upon yourself. But there are some who are poor through trying providences, who are poor but industrious or hard-working. And again, we must not assume that all poverty is because of laziness and wickedness and wastefulness, because there are some who work hard and try hard. Perhaps you know people who've applied for every job going and there's nothing that they've been able to find, or they've they've been willing to work and yet no one will give them work, or they've made a wise investment of time or energy or money, and yet in God's providence it has come to nothing. Spurgeon says, now if that's the case, where God has placed you, strive to adorn that position. Be thankful to him and bless his name for these reasons, that if you are poor in this world, so was your Lord. A Christian is a believer who has fellowship with Christ, but a poor Christian has in his poverty a special vein of fellowship with Christ opened up to him. If you are poor, so was your master, and his sympathy with you embraces even your experience of need then you should be contented because because otherwise you will give the lie to your own prayers. You say in the morning, your will be done. But what if you get up and then you want your own will and you rebel against what God is doing with you? Your heavenly Father has given you this situation and now are you not making yourself out to be a hypocrite? If we really believe that we want God's will to be done, then we will know contentment if God's will is for us to suffer or struggle or be poor. And then, if you are poor, you should be well content with your position because it is the fittest for you. It's what you need. Divine wisdom has given you what you have. If you were rich, you perhaps would not have as much grace as you have now. Perhaps God knew that if he didn't make you poor, you would not get to heaven. That if he'd given you much, you would have trusted in your wealth. And so in his mercy, he's kept wealth from you that you may trust in him. So he's saying, remember that wisdom and love has appointed the circumstances of love of life for God's people. And so we need to understand that this is God's provision for us. Take up your cross, he says. You could not have a better trial than you've got. It's best for you. It sifts you the most. It will do you the most good. It will prove the most effective means of making you perfect in every good word and work to the glory of God. That's hard to grasp, isn't it? That's difficult. That if there was something better for me, I would have it. And so what I go through now is God's best for me. And if that's hard to take, Spurgeon says, remember too that whatever your trouble, it is not for long. You may have no estate on earth, but you have a large one in heaven. And perhaps that will be all the larger by reason of the poverty you've had to endure here below. Here again is this predestinarian strain, this reminder that we are passing through this world on our way to our heavenly home. 
We barely have a roof to cover our head here, but we have a mansion in heaven, a house not made with hands. We may have no pillow for our heads here, but we will have a crown in the glory to come. The painful conflict will not last long, and then there shall be glittering robes for conquerors. And then a word or two to sufferers. All men, he says, are born to sorrow, but some are born to a double portion of it. There are different classes of men, as there are, he says, different classes of trees. The cypress seems to have been created especially to stand at the grave's head and be a weeper. And there are some men and some women who seem to be made on purpose that they might weep. He says, I admire patience so much because I feel myself so incapable of it. He says, I'm looking around and I see people who are suffering and they are doing so with contentment. And he says, remember, if you are one of God's beloved people, as long as you are out of hell, gratitude may mingle with your groans. It's a, a curious comfort, but a real one. Think what you truly deserve. And if you are one of God's people and on your way to heaven, whatever you may go through here is better than you could ever have imagined to deserve. And there is a glory to come which you could never deserve. As long as you are out of hell, mingle gratitude with your groans. He's not dismissive, not for one moment. He says, remember too, that all these sufferings are less than Christ's sufferings. These chastenings are working for your good. They are the, the fruit of Christ's death on your behalf. They are making you ready. Every stroke of your father's rod is bringing you nearer to perfection. The flame does not hurt you. It only refines you and takes away your dross. There's a, a hymn that Spurgeon would have sung. It may well have been written by Benjamin Keach. The flame shall not hurt thee, says the Lord. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. These are the things that God is using to bring you closer to himself, both in the sense of communion with him and toward that time when you shall see him for your own. Yes, you may have sharp filing, but if you've not been well filed, you would not have been an instrument for the master's use. You would have grown so rusty. If he'd kept you always free from suffering, you would have been lacking often those sweet cordials which the physician of souls administers to his fainting patients. Now, if you think Spurgeon's just shooting from the hip here, remember his own sufferings. He does. He feels a little self-conscious in speaking in this way because, he says, I am not sick myself. But when I came to you once from the chamber of suffering, pale and thin and sick and ill, I remember addressing you from that text that was blessed to some far away in America, as this podcast may be, on the same sermon. If need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Then I think I might very justly have said to you, in whatsoever state you are, be content. So he's, he's trying to hold back a little because he recognises that he's speaking out of present health as opposed to present suffering. But I can tell you, if you know anything of the life of Spurgeon, you will agree that this is a man who learned to be abased and to abound, that he might have trembled to put on his own lips the words of the apostle, but nevertheless there was in his soul in his body, in his experience, something of that same range that the Apostle knew. 
And though doubtless it was hard work, he was a man who had learned and was learning to be content. And so he concludes with a call to those who are out of Christ, who are the most miserable people in the world. They may think themselves happy, they may consider themselves content, but there's not a Christian who would change places with the best of you. When we are very sick, very poor, on the borders of the grave, if those who seem healthy and wealthy and are great in the world's estimation were to say, I will change places with you, you may have my gold and my silver, my riches, my health, there's not a living Christian who would surrender their hope in Christ in order to obtain the good things of this world. Saints have no hell but what they suffer here on earth. Sinners will have no heaven but what they have here in this poor, troublous world. That being so, where would you have your sufferings and where would you have your glory? Spurgeon encourages us to think that the sufferings here are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in the people of God. So do not build your hopes and your happinesses in this present evil age, but trust in Christ alone. And with that, we must conclude. As I say, you can find that uh, PDF through the, uh, the the podcast page at mediagratii.org. I hope you'll read it for yourself. I hope it will be a profit to you. Next week, our featured sermon is number 328. We're reading from 325 to 331, and 328 is our featured sermon on true prayer, true power. That's true prayer, true power. And I hope you'll join us again on that occasion. Thank you. My name is Jeremy Walker, and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information and to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.